1: Podcast One Production. What would you do if you were in charge of a country's immigration system and a 12 month old baby did this in an immigration camp you ran?
2: She pulled a bowl of boiling water on top of herself while her mother's back was turned off a table inside the tent.
1: If you answered, deport the baby to a tiny island nation with inadequate medical facilities, then you're probably an Australian immigration minister. This is the story of baby Asher and the campaign to uphold the value of basic human decency. Sounds like a fairly uncontroversial idea, but in Australia, it's anything but, especially when it comes to the issue of immigration. What would have happened if she'd gone back to Narendra? I fear she might
3: have died.
1: I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemakers, supported by our launch partner, Mobilisation Lab. Today, part two of our exploration of what happens when anger ignites a movement. In the last episode, I was in South Africa, looking at a movement that started out with throwing poo at a statue. It ended with students mobilising across the nation. Today, another story born out of anger that also led those involved to take direct action. And just a couple of notes about this story. To protect their privacy, baby Asher is a pseudonym. And during production, it was a race against time to interview some of the people involved in this episode before they were subject to a government-mandated ban on discussing it. This means some of the interviews were recorded on the fly. So sorry if some of the recordings are a bit scratchy, but we have been restricted from going back to do follow-up interviews. Our story starts in the moments after baby Asher received severe burns to her body and face. Baby Asher had been imprisoned with her parents in a concentration camp on the small island of Nauru, a nation of 10,000 people, in the South Pacific Ocean. A place where medical facilities are, well, basic. As a result, whenever any major medical emergency happened, the Australian government had to medevac the patients on a Learjet back to Australia. And look, I know if you're not from Australia, you're probably having a hard time understanding this story. Yes, in my home country, we imprison babies in offshore concentration camps. Even babies born in our country go there if they're unlucky enough to be born to the wrong sort of parents. I don't use the term concentration camp lightly, but that's what they are. The Australian government intentionally makes the camps as awful as possible, so that families with tiny children live in sweltering conditions, intense with no air conditioning. They are a place to persecute a specific minority, And they are intentionally awful places with inadequate facilities. That's what a concentration camp is. And in case you're wondering, just like other concentration camps throughout history, the people who are sent there have committed no crimes. The government justifies all of this because these people are fleeing for their lives. They are refugees. Perhaps the most shocking, though, is this. The deportation of a burnt baby back to a camp with scant medical services, was likely to enjoy support politically from both major parties in Australia. Ellen Roberts was an activist at the time and she says that actually the minister was surprised when he met resistance to deporting a severely injured baby.
0: That was what standard practice had been. Um, Asher was certainly not the first baby to be treated at Lady Slento and then deported back to Nauru. I think what's more remarkable is why did he have difficulty deporting Asher. So something shifted around that time that made this a real flashpoint.
1: This is the story of what that flashpoint was. But before I can tell you that story, first a bit of context about how Australia got itself to this point. Many years ago, in 2001, a very masterful politician called John Howard started using refugees as a scapegoat to help him get re-elected. The previous election, he'd done it with Australia's Indigenous community, and it worked. His method was simple. Pick a minority group, ideally with brown skin, and accuse them of being criminals or bludgers or just deeply suspicious. The opposition party, who was on the left side of politics, would then leap to the poor minority's defence, and Howard would then use that as proof that the opposition was weak on whatever he was accusing the minority of doing. Weak on crime, weak on bludging, weak on national security. You get the idea. It's like what Donald Trump has done with Mexicans and Muslims. And for Howard, in the heat of a six-week election campaign, it didn't really matter whether the allegations were true. As long as the mud stuck long enough for him to be re-elected, that's all he needed. But in 2001, just as Howard was ramping up a particularly nasty campaign against refugees fleeing conflicts in the Middle East... This iconic moment flashed up on our screens. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Centre and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers
2: of the World Trade
1: Centre. 9-11. Suddenly in the public mind, refugees got mixed up with terrorists. It was a great piece of luck for Howard and devastatingly unlucky for refugees. Dave Copeman ran a large coalition of many of the biggest community organisations in Brisbane.
4: There have been stories in the populist press and in Talkback Radio that really portrayed asylum seekers as queue jumpers, as people who were rotting the system, as illegals, as, as people who weren't to be trusted.
1: The result, 15 years later, is that a Minister of Immigration has sweeping powers and the most vulnerable immigrants are housed offshore outside the reach of Australian laws.
4: There's been a long campaign of dehumanising asylum seekers and of moving them out of Australia so they're out of people's mind.
1: Whereas many saw the whole politics of our country in a stalemate, Ros McLennan, the head of the union movement in the Australian state of Queensland, saw an opportunity when baby Asher arrived on that Learjet.
3: While many of us don't buy the federal government's alarmist hysteria over refugees and terrorists, some do, but everybody can relate to a mother's worry about a seriously, seriously injured baby.
1: After all, how much of a threat can an unarmed, severely burnt baby be to national security? Natasha Bulcher was a caseworker for people who were seeking refuge in Australia. She'd heard that a baby had suffered burns in the concentration camp on Nauru, but the government wouldn't tell her where she was being taken.
2: There's a phone app called Flight Radar, and you can watch planes move through the sky and where they're going to. Her
1: job was to represent the interests of baby Asha and her parents.
2: And then we just figured out where the best burns hospital was in Brisbane. Wow, and so that's how you found where she was? Yeah, so we called a few different hospitals and then hit the jackpot.
1: Within days, Asha had been stabilised, although the medical staff didn't want to send baby Asha back to Nauru.
2: The doctor in the Burns Unit was fantastic. They seemed to have made a decision not to discharge her until we could have her legally secured.
1: Problem was, thanks to all the laws they'd passed, it was up to the Immigration Minister to make the call, and he wanted her deported. So a small group of activists decided to hold a vigil in protest. Ellen Roberts was among the first down there. How did you find out about baby Asher in the hospital?
0: Um, I was actually just... I went home. and had a couple of beers after Friday night work and went home. And I was actually just looking at Facebook and saw someone had posted calling out for people to go down to the hospital. Soon word spread. Ros McLennan
3: was almost
1: asleep.
0: When I
3: got a call late one Friday night... In February, after I'd just gone to bed, so the makeup was off, the hair was in a ponytail, got into my (laughs) pyjamas. You know, the lights had just been turned off and there was a call on the mobile. And my first thought was I forgot to put it on silent.
1: Then she saw who it was, Jed Carney, the head of the Australian union movement. And I thought it must be important given the hour, so obviously I took the call. She told Roz that there were 10 people standing outside Lady Salento Hospital
3: because there was serious concern that baby Asha and her parents were going to be taken back to Nauru. And Jed was expressing concern that these eight or ten people were out there in the night and it would be good to give them a sign of solidarity or support. And if I could do what I could. Friday night, what would you do? I looked at my watch, it might have been shortly after 10 o'clock at night, and I said, oh can I get down there first thing in the morning? And she said, sure. And then I got back to bed and then I had that kind of look in the mirror moment and I thought, yeah, I'm sort of getting back into a warm bed and my husband's here and my two little kids are tucked up in bed, everyone's safe, snug, sleeping peacefully. And I thought, I think I can get out of bed. (laughs) So. Because there's another little nipper, obviously, you know, baby Asher, down at Lady Salento who wasn't facing such comfort and security. Once she got down there,
1: Ros put out the call on social media.
3: Other people came thick and fast throughout the
1: night. One of the first people she called was Dave Copeman.
4: Ros McClellan called me on Friday night and she said, Get down here to the Lady Salento. There's a baby who's being detained and we fear that she's going to get sent back to Nauru. She's an asylum seeker and we're organising a vigil.
1: As the hours ticked over into the early morning, Roz and Dave chatted about the sheer logistics of what they were doing. It was clear that for this vigil to have any impact, that they'd need more allies.
3: So Roz asked other unions to support the vigil. In my heart, I knew that it was the right thing to do. So we made the call that we would... And happily, our affiliate
1: unions felt the same. The union movement swung behind Baby Asher. But why? What did Baby Asher have to do with workers' conditions?
3: The reason our members work is to provide for themselves and their families. Here, in another part of Brisbane, not too far from my house, is a mother desperately worried about her baby and what future for her baby's health wellbeing and welfare if the baby and her parents were moved back to the room and i just you know as a mother as a unionist i couldn't have the capacity to make change at my fingertips and do nothing there was a photo that someone took of me with messy hair no makeup and I had yanked on a black T-shirt that was a Victorian Trades Hall issue, saying, um, this is what a unionist looks like.
1: And it wasn't just unionists. Dave Copeman rang around the churches.
4: I called Dave Baker, the moderator of the United Church in Queensland, and said, we need support for this. And some of the local churches, West End Uniting Church. I contacted the Catholic Archdiocese and Peter Arndt from the Commission for Justice and Peace. And I spoke to some of the community organisations were involved.
1: As the days went on, instead of the numbers at the vigil falling, they went up.
4: Every day, pretty much, we tried to organise an action, getting a couple of hundred people out the front of the hospital in the kind of purpose-built, perfect, (laughs) amphitheater-type style situation there. And we'd say, oh, well, let's put something up on Facebook for tomorrow. And the hour had come around and there'd be 200, 300 people. And it was just... There was... It was it was in the air. People had hope that something was going to change here, and they just thought, "I want to be there. I want to be part of this."
1: A vigil was a great way to peacefully make sure that baby Asher stayed safe. They knew that while she was in the hospital, she would be safe. But baby Asher couldn't stay in the hospital indefinitely. The government's position was that once she was discharged, she would be deported. To do otherwise would undermine their tough on refugees stance that had underwritten their electoral success for 15 years. Yet, thanks to the vigil, that was becoming a more and more unpopular stance every day. The problem was nobody knew what would happen next. It was a genuine stalemate. Back in a moment. This podcast is supported by GetUp. You might know GetUp from their emails... But nowadays, there's so much more than that. But don't take it from me. Let's hear what Australian Senator Eric Betts has to say about them.
4: We have these grubs going around the electorate, besmirching his character.
1: That's right. GetUp is actively getting up the nose of all the right people. And how are they doing this? By mobilising one million members across Australia.
3: It's given me a whole new lease of life because. I feel I'm actually
1: able to make a difference. If you want to have real impact, visit getup.org.au and sign up today. Let them Let them Let them Let them Baby Asher was stuck in the hospital. The government wanted to deport her, but the round-the-clock vigil outside was growing every day. Baby Asha's caseworker, Natasha Bulcher, was keenly aware that without a sophisticated communication strategy, the vigil was likely to fail, no matter
2: how big it was. I think that the Department of Immigration and the Minister's Office feel that they can ride out some campaigns to a certain extent.
1: But there was a problem. What the media love are personal details. That was the key to getting people to empathise with the family's plight.
2: So in the asylum sector, we have to be very, very careful about informed consent and making sure that clients know what's being done and that they are happy with the information that's being shared. Luckily, baby Ash's
1: parents trusted Natasha and agreed to let their situation be made public.
2: So it wasn't just an issue that was stagnant. The public was made aware of every step in this family's journey, right? And they became invested in it. And I think that's what resulted in such huge media coverage and huge support is that people were able to really understand day by day what was happening for this family.
1: It was a tough situation that required real courage on their part. Essentially, Natasha was asking them to stand up and oppose publicly the government that had so much power over them. But they understood that it would help not just their family, but everyone in their situation. Some days were better than others.
2: And some days it would be as simple as, oh, Tash, I don't want them to know how upset I am today. Don't tell them that. Just tell them that I said thank you,
1: you know? Shane was part of the comms team. He understood that for the media to lap up the story, he had to humanise the family, something Natasha had to get used to at first.
2: I want to tell the stories of your clients, but what I want to tell is what their favourite food is and what band they liked when they lived in Iran or when they lived in Sri Lanka, you know? And I was like, that's not the important information, Shin, you know? Like, these people are suffering immensely and you want to talk about, like, what their favourite cereal is? Are
1: you kidding me? But the strategy worked. As the media coverage grew, public sympathy for baby Asher grew too. The campaign was called Let Them Stay. It sought to use the baby Asher case to argue that the 250 refugees who were facing deportation to Australia's offshore concentration camps should all be allowed to remain in Australia... Ellen Roberts helped run the campaign for GetUp, a large digital campaign organisation. She says that as the story dragged on with no real resolution in sight, it allowed the campaign to broaden their sights further
0: still. Really, it opened up an ability to talk about the conditions on Nauru and Manus, but it did it via the specific situations for those people. And it was during that time that we did see a massive shift Polling shows at the time amongst Australian people about what they thought was, you know, whether they thought that was an acceptable situation or not.
1: Meanwhile, inside the hospital, the doctors, seeing the immense community support, strengthened their resolve.
2: Once the campaign kicked off and there was a lot of support there, I think perhaps the doctors realised that they were able to do more with their leverage. And so they then said, we won't discharge her until she goes to a housing community. We don't accept a detention centre to be a safe place for a child.
1: For a while, it seemed like the whole of Australia was focused on what would happen to baby Asher.
0: On that Monday morning, we had a live TV cross. There were two live TV crosses. And so we gathered people around, you know, to show the world and the nation that there was all these people here.
1: Then, the following weekend, it suddenly seemed like the government was going to try and get its way by force. My
3: six-year-old daughter, Frances, and I were at my office in South Brisbane. She was doing some colouring in. You know, I was doing a bit of work, and I got a call from someone down at Lady Salento saying it's happening. We're on. We've seen federal police. We've seen heaps of uniformed security guards. The hospital staff are a buzz.
1: The fear was the government was going to forcibly remove Baby Asher using federal police outside the protesters were split on how to react.
3: There was a bit of a heated discussion about, okay, if they're moving baby Asha and her mother, what's our response going to be? There were views being offered about we don't want to cause more stress and upset to baby Asha and her mother. They've been through a lot. It's been a long vigil. And there was a suggestion that perhaps we have a a silent acknowledgement as baby Asha and her mother were taken away from the hospital to be um, ultimately deported. That was one view.
1: But there was another view.
3: Another view was that, you know, people shout and scream and noisily protest and endeavour to get themselves arrested (laughs) to draw public opinion. Roz had
1: another idea entirely.
3: I said, look, this is what we've got to do. We haven't been standing here for 10 days, 12 days, to wave goodbye to baby Asha. We've been here to stop them taking baby Asha and her mother. So we're not gonna just silently stand there and wave goodbye, but we're actually gonna stop it.
1: Being a unionist, Roz and many of her cohort were used to pickets, but this was a very different type of picket. Instead of preventing people getting in, it was to prevent one very special person, a tiny baby from getting out. Still, they approached the logistical issues like they would on any picket.
3: We identified the exits, the roads out of the hospital where baby Asher and her mother could be taken. We organised into groups. We appointed a um, you know, team leader, an off in every group. We gathered contact names, phone numbers, so we could keep in touch with people who were leading the group at every exit. I explained that what we needed to do was be on the lookout for a car. We had descriptions of the um, security uniform so people knew what to look out for. To be effective, it
1: required a hugely disciplined show of force. We explained to each group that what
3: they were looking for was obviously a car with the mother and the baby in the car. And if we didn't have eyes on the occupants of the vehicle, we were to move calmly and slowly, into the road, stop the car, explain what we were doing in a calm way, eyes on the back of the vehicle, and when it was all good, we could move aside and thank folks for their time.
1: It meant not letting anyone get through the blockade unchecked, no matter who they were.
3: In one incident, a colleague and I stopped... A car that was a large, dark-coloured car with tinted windows, which we thought looked like a suspicious vehicle. It was dark by that time. It was being driven by two police. Again, you know, we asked them to wind down the window. We respectfully, politely outlined what we were doing. We indicated that we'd let them pass when we saw inside, had eyes on, you know, the back of their vehicle. It was all clear. The crowd moved aside, let them pass. (laughs) So...
1: That created a few smiles. It took the government by surprise. The next day, the Minister for Immigration announced that baby Asha and her parents would not be deported. It was the biggest reversal in refugee policy in Australia for a decade. It was an extraordinary defeat for the government, something that, when they started the vigil, they hadn't imagined would be possible.
4: I think the main lesson for me is that it's all right to take an action where you're not sure where the end is if you know you've got enough people and resources and networks of people willing to support it. Like, that was quite a scary move, and it, I'm not sure I would have had the courage to do what Roz did, to say we're going to do this so clearly when there were so few people there, but the lesson was that that worked.
1: Let Them Stay was fueled by a growing sense of injustice that had been building for years, decades even. That was a very similar situation to the South African students we met in Part 1. But unlike those at the vigil, the students in the Fees Must Fall campaign forged their relationships on the battlefield. First, through a series of occupations of university buildings, and through bruising clashes with police in the streets. While they trusted each other in the heat of the moment, certain segments of students felt free to push the envelope further than others. There were radical elements in the student movement that freelanced off Some even demanded the overthrow of the entire government. This incoherence of approach then led them to focus almost entirely on the specific tactics they were using. They'd spent so much time discussing how to fend off rubber bullets, they'd forgotten to discuss why they were using that tactic anymore. In contrast, the Let Them Stay campaign relied on bonds of trust that had been established well outside the crisis flashpoint. Many of the unionists, churchgoers and community activists who came together, had known each other for years, brokered by Dave's organisation. That created a trust where bold, decisive action taken in the moment was possible. But the direct action was deployed only to address the larger goal of letting baby Asher stay. Anger ignited both campaigns, but ultimately baby Asher's vigils succeeded because their tactics served their strategy. It was long-standing relationships that made that possible, not just in the heat of the battle, but in the months and the years beforehand.
4: But they stuck with it because they had trust in each other and they, they had trust in the organisations involved that we'd stick with each other and we'd be, we'd be true to each other. And, and that was the lesson for me, is that building connection across organisations isn't just useful for planned work that, you know, you agree on together and then you try and organise around. It's really important so that you can react to an opportunity or a crisis. And let us take a big risk together. And it worked.
1: Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. It's produced by Carolyn Pegram and Catherine Franey. Written by Charles Firth. Our researchers are Tessa Sparks, Iona Rennie and Amy Farrell. Sound editing by Molika Bin and Jules Wookera. Our audio producers are Uncanny Valley. Our theme music is by Justin Shave. Our launch partner is Mobilisation Lab. They are a global learning and collaboration network powering the future of social change campaigns. Our sponsoring organisations are Australia for UNHCR, getup.org.au, the Fred Hollows Foundation, Sydney Democracy Network, and the Organising Cities Project, funded by the Halloran Trust, based at the University of Sydney. And for this episode, thanks to the Gay and Lesbian Memory in Action Project at VITS University. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories.